some conversations are pointless. Perhaps you've had some. You know, you talk to somebody, you leave and wish you hadn't had that conversation. There's other conversations that are more important, especially around family issues, life issues, planning things, you know. As the significance of the thing being talked about increases, the the conversation increases. There's probably uh, nowhere that we probably care more about what someone has to say than their last words when they're dying, the final things they will ever get to say to us. We just had a death in our family, and one of the sad things is, is we didn't get to have that moment with her, didn't get to hear the final words. But the Bible has for us today a situation where we do get to hear the final words, not just the final words of anybody, though the final words of anybody is important, the final words of a king, not just the final words of any king, the final words of the king, lowercase t, lowercase k. King David. So if you have a Bible, please join me in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 2, and we're going to be eavesdropping on David's parting words to Solomon. David's parting words to Solomon, and this is God's word. 1 Kings, chapter 2. Y'all there? Say amen if you're there. Amen. Amen. I'm waiting for the other half of y'all. You there? Okay, there they go. Okay, 1 Kings chapter 2. Just a heads up, I'm not yelling at you. I'm just loud. So, 1 Kings chapter 2. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table, For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Behurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. 
Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. And this is God's word. Yeah, yeah. So we know that this is a dying man because the Bible tells us, right? So right there, verse 1, says it pretty clearly. When David's time to die drew near, the bookend of that, right there at verse 10, David died. Verse 11 through verse 12 kind of give us that quick summary about David's life, his kingship, how long he was there, and kind of a passing of the baton over to Solomon. We see not only was Solomon established as a king, but the Bible tells us his kingdom was firmly established. The phrase lets us know that the charge Solomon received, perhaps it might seem harsh to us, did not discredit his kingdom at all. It didn't take away from its establishment. In some senses, it seemed to help forward its establishment. What David told Solomon to do didn't diminish his conduct as a king, but reinforced, even established him as a king. The counsel that the young King Solomon received from his father didn't do him any harm. It only helped. It means that this was carried about by the Holy Spirit, preserved for our instruction. We hope to be helped by it as well this morning. Uh, David lays before Solomon a charge, and we'll be thinking about it in two points. The first point is the charge to worship God. The second point is reward and recompense. For those of you note takers, that's the best I can do. One, the charge to worship God. Two, reward and recompense. First, let's consider the charge to worship God. David knew he was about to die, and he's eager to pass on a mindset to his son. And we shouldn't be surprised by what we initially find that David wanted Solomon to go with. We shouldn't be surprised that the king after God's own heart wanted his son to be a king after God's own heart. He would encourage his son to likewise carry the way of the Lord before him. David's passion for his son is that he would have a passion for the Lord. He knew that his earthly role as father was trumped by God's divine role as father. As my great-grandfather Matthew Henry puts it, The authority of a dying father is much, but nothing to that of a living God. What is surprising, though, is what he says. I find it surprising, at least, that the great rule, what would a king say to an up-and-coming king? What would you expect him to say? It's the same thing God has passed on to all men. Fear the Lord. Keep his commandments. From the greatest of us to the least of us, the call, the charge, what's most important is the same, that we keep the way of the Lord, loving God by loving him according to his word. Consider for David, this was the way of blessing, the way of prospering. He says that right there in verse 2. He says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. Show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his stat. And he's just stacking up synonyms, right? Walking in his ways, 
keeping his charge, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, all that's written in the law of Moses. He's like, the book of God, keep the book of God as your book. Live according to that book. For David, it wasn't just the way he must go because God said so, though it was the way he must go because God said so. What God said so was the most blessed way. He says it there, that you may prosper. Saints, the no's from God are to our prospering. God's way was the way of happiness, the way of life. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who are in the way of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. David wanted his son to be happy. And the only way to be happy is to be in the way of God. How amazing it is to think that God has made the best life, the most blessed life available to everybody. A king does not have a more blessed life than a beggar if they are walking in God's way. David, King David, ain't got nothing on God's way. He cannot improve it. He can't prop it up. It's great as it is. God has not reserved the greatest way as a secret for a few. He shared the blessed life with all of mankind. The best life, the blessed life is available to all who call upon the Lord. Glory for the broke people, glory for the kings. And what a wise father David shows himself to be. I must address the parents for a second, the text Requires it. Parents, what is your desire for your children? Is it clear to you? Is it clear to them? Do you desire anything more for them than for them to be found walking in the way of God? Is your greatest concern for them that they love God, not love sports? Not love school, not love success, but love God. Those are all okay things. They don't compare with him. It must be our aim. It's a godly aim. Not just for our kids, for any relationship you have. It's Christian love. What we desire most is that the person that we are next to is the most happy they can be. And the only way they can be happy, truly happy, is if they know the Lord. David's desire was not that his son was like him or even that his son liked him. His desire was to see him love the Lord. Are you struggling with purpose in life? Maybe now. Maybe after you achieve the next thing you thought you would achieve and they would give you some type of satisfaction, but it actually doesn't because nothing satisfies like God. Is this kind of big, huge life goals? You know, they like bring up like a picture, like an old couple, like relationship goals, and then that's like what you want. 
David's over there. This is some life goals. True joy, happiness, is life tethered to abiding in God's word. A person who is rarely acquainted with the word of God will have a light, a low, a little esteem for the glory of God. They will have a hard time fighting sin and little effectiveness in their service. But those who keep the way of God, they prosper. We'll get to that in a second. But David knows this is true. He knows the power he had when he depended on God, walking in his ways. Lions rolled up on him. I ripped the lions up. Bear came up on me, handled the bear, came across Goliath. God helped me with Goliath. He knew the ruin that befell him when he turned from the way of the Lord too. A dead child, a dead family, dead people. He knew the blessedness that a truly happy life, a pure life, is a life committed to God's word. Let's listen to him talk about it. Psalm 19, a psalm of David. So if you say, David, if we could, if he was talking to his son and he was like, son, we're like, could you just elaborate on that a little bit, David? Just a little bit. Tease that out. This, he would say this because he said this. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect. Your education is not. It's the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts, and you hear the stacking? The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Is that how you talk about your Bible? It's how we should. We should not think little of this book. We got something perfect in this book, something sure in this book, something right in this book, something clean in this book, something that endures forever in this book. We can't forget David was a king. This ain't the homie David. This is King David, who was rich. David was crazy rich successful. He knew power. He knew money. He knew pleasure. And he's thinking, but when I think about the word, he says, more to be desired are they, speaking of the the word of God, the way of God, more to be desired are they, the precepts, the rules, than gold, than my money. He says, even much fine gold, the big face bills, Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. <laughs> now, you probably don't like honey like that, so that doesn't connect with you, but whatever rocks you, right? So some of y'all say mac and cheese, like mama's mac and cheese. <laughs> or like water ice on a, on a hot day. He's like, it's, it's sweeter to me. Nothing's more valuable, nothing's more pleasurable, nothing's more important to me. Then God's word, son, moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them is great reward. 
Psalm 16. Again, David had it all, but the Lord was David's portion. Psalm 16, a mictum of David. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Which house you like more, David? Nah, the Lord is my portion. Tell me about your retirement plan. Nah, the Lord is my portion. He's my cup. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. This is a man who's the king. Sometimes broke people, I could speak as one, you think if you have more money, you'd have more joy. And it's not so. What money can make available to you doesn't compare with God. And he's like, in his presence is full joy, pleasure forevermore. He's looking at Solomon. And in order for Solomon... To rule well, he knows he must be ruled by God's word. But it brings blessing. He wants him to prosper. That's what we want for our children. That's what we want for people. All these conversations about the dignity of life is not wanting to see people flourish, prosper. What makes people prosper is not so much social activism as much as Scripture. This is the way of prospering. Friend, what's your confidence as you go through life? What is prospering for you? How do you prosper? When are you prospering? How do you know if you're not prospering? Is it to do your job well? Is it being a liked person? Is it being perceived as something or someone significant? Perhaps you're here today and you don't know Jesus. What's prospering to you? Is it what you can get? What you can enjoy? I mean, you turn on the radio, they tell you what they think prospering is because that's what they brag about. I got money. I got women. I got stuff. Look at me. They be throwing money. This is obviously rap I'm talking about. But they be throwing money everywhere. To give the illusion of prosper, look at me prospering. Biblically, does prospering not mean to thrive in what we were created for? Namely, to give glory to God? Is that not our purpose? To give glory. When David's looking at Solomon so he prospered, he's thinking as a king, I'm sure of it, but more important than a king, he's thinking to prosper in what he was created to do, to give glory to God. That's the metric we should be using to evaluate prosperity. This is why prosperity doctrine, the prosperity theology, the prosperity gospel is so demonic. It equates biblical prospering with physical comfort now. You write a whole book called Your Best Life Now, and it's not exposition on the book. And the problem with that is that prospering in the Lord, that false prospering, can't be the prospering he's talking about because it doesn't hold suffering. 
When David says prosper, does he mean not suffer? The Christian mantra is that the path to obedience goes to a cross. Christ was obedient even to the point of death. And death on a cross wasn't just death, but bad death. Yes? Did he prosper? They say yes, he did. Resurrection says so. What David cannot mean is that you walk in the way of the Lord's son, you will not suffer. He can't mean that. How do we know David doesn't mean that? Because we got David's life in the Bible. David was a suffering dude. Like early on in his situation. No, David suffered constantly. Hunted by a king. Now look, I'm sure people have been after you in the office. Nobody's aroused the resources of their kingdom to come and get you. Betrayed by his family. Betrayed by his friends. He knew well the temptations to sin and falling into sin. He knew well the devastation that sin brought. He knew failure as a father. Right, so chapter previous, talking about Adonijah, the Bible looks at David. David didn't displease him in anything, it says. And Adonijah was tripping because of it. And the failing of his body. He's dying. So David can't mean, son, just believe. It'll go better for you. So what could he mean? He could only mean prospering must mean Prospering must mean, and this is important, we have a clear picture of this because it's so easy for us to lie against God when we don't like a situation. But it's important that our idea of suffering, um, prospering includes suffering. You can do it when you suffer. You can prosper while you suffer. He could only mean a prospering that thrives even amidst suffering. A, a, a prospering that produces rejoicing, that isn't silenced by sorrow. This is what Paul talks about. We're sorrowful, but still prospering, always rejoicing. To prosper, then, if someone's walking in God's way, keeping God's way, we should be thinking, is to have abundant joy in God's love for us in Christ. I think that's what it means to prosper. It's to have abundant joy in God's love for us in Christ. David would not want us to hear, keep God's word, and not conclude we get to Jesus. Because that's what the Bible does. You read the Bible, you follow, it takes you to Jesus. Jesus says, hey, you read the scriptures, you think that in them you have eternal life, and they bring you to me. Two other verses, John 15, 10 through 11, Jesus commenting, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Romans 8, 35 through 39, who shall separate us from Christ's love? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And you can just add in whatever suffering you're going through. 
what separates somebody from having abundant joy in the fact that they are loved by God in Christ. He lists some, names some stuff. Persecution, that means you might be persecuted. Famine, that means you might be going without food. Nakedness, without clothes. Danger, without safety. Sword, without life. He says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So the question he's asking the Romans is, if people follow Jesus and they get this, are they not prospering? And how does Paul continue? He says, no. In all these things, in all these things, in the stuff you hate, you can prosper. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He's saying, no, in these things, we can prosper. He says, I'm sure neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all the creation. That's Paul doing his version of stacking. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's looking at his son. He says, son, keep the way of God before you that you'll prosper. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But what? His delight is on the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree, a prospering tree, by the water, killing it. This is the BSV. <laughs> Yields its fruit in season. Its leaf doesn't wither. In all he does, he prospers. Now, when he's talking about that tree, it matters what kind of tree comes into your mind. Because that's what he's telling his son. Be a tree. What kind of tree? What is the fruit he's talking about that bears in season? What fruit? What kind of leaf does it have? So I see it as a glory of God tree. A tree that flourishes to give glory to God. Because that's the one thing you can do when you're suffering. You can't change it, but you can give fruit. You can thrive. If the objective is to glorify God, suffering can't take that from you. It can take all the other stuff you got. It can't take that. And Jesus said, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciple. David not only is looking at his prospering, but he's looking to someone. He's looking to someone. Look there in verse 4. He says, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me. Now, what word is that, that God spoke concerning him? Well, he quotes it. If your sons pay close attention to their way, 
to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So David's like, son, you messed this up. We messed the promise up. And there's something, God wants our attention on something forward. So this promise that David has is connected to what's been called the Davidic covenant. God made a promise with David. And the promise had multiple um, expressions. Uh, The one he's quoting here is from Psalm 132. But right there in 2 Samuel 7, God comes to David and says, you're my guy. I chose you. I raised you up as my king, a man after my heart, and you're my guy. If you keep this word, your lineage will not lack on the throne. Talk about family wealth. They keep my word. They walk in my ways. I got you. I got everybody who comes through you. Because through you, God told him, there is someone I'm going to send. He says, in your house, your kingdom, this is 2 Samuel 7, 16, your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You got a throne that's not going anywhere, and from you, there's going to be a king that's going to be on that forever throne. Keep my word. And David's hype about it because he loves God. And he's looking to the benefits for him now, and he's looking to God's promise in the future. This covenant wasn't just for David. It was for David's sons. It wasn't just for David's sons, but it was for David's son. For it to be a forever throne, you need a what? You got to have a forever kingly line. And at some point, a forever king. So just as God covenanted with David and wanted David to look forward, David's passing that down to Solomon. He's like, son, God is doing something exciting. He's bringing a ruler who's going to rule forever through our family. Keep his word. He'll keep his word. You keep his word. David was looking forward to the king, the king who would produce a forever reign. Uh, Luke 1 starts by saying in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph in the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, it's I, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, this, is, this, is all, this should be triggering in the Jew what God promised David. He's going to give him a, a king. He's going to be a son to me, the Bible says. <laughs> and this is the next line. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. 
David's looking at Jesus. David didn't know the identity of Jesus. He was looking at the promise of Jesus because that's what the Bible does. It goes to Jesus. He's like, son, you keep on this way. He's, the king's coming. And he's supposed to come to us. Build your life on God's word. And God's going to make your house sure. Point two, reward and recompense. With his call to keep the charge of the Lord, specifically as a king, Solomon would have the unique job of representing God in how he ruled. This is another reason why he must be intimately acquainted with the word of God. So in Deuteronomy 17, a king was required to have a copy of God's law approved by the, the Levites, right? It couldn't be some, some dude just wrote. It had to be an approved copy. And it says so he could read it daily so he wouldn't get arrogant and so that he could rule well. Because the king would not only issue decrees consistent with God's word, he was responsible for executing judgment according to God's word. And David draws specific attention to Solomon and says, you got to bring the blade down. It's what kings do. In considering these two men who will catch the blade, we should consider ourselves, 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We're told here of two men, Joab and Shimei, who David was not cool with. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, I'll try to give you a brief synopsis. Joab was David's commander. And you're like, man, David, that's cold. You about to die and your last word is kill the homie. But that's not what happened. He brings up Joab's charges. Because more than David valued a person, he valued the Lord. He says, you know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner and Amasa, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. He gives two different ways that Joab killed Abner and Amasa. So one, he killed in a time of peace. He avenged for blood that was shed in a time of peace. He, uh, excuse me, blood that was shed in a time of war, Joab revenged in a time of peace. And that's wicked because David's like, look, y'all was in a battle. He got killed. That's what happens in war. But we were in a season of peace and you killed him then. And that's no bueno. The second guy, Amasa, he was David's new commander who he promoted over Joab and Joab got jealous. So the basic story goes, Joab had two brothers, Abishai and Asahel. Now, they were on David's side. This is during the David-Saul beef, the David-Saul battle, okay? Now, Abner was with Saul, okay? They came together. They had a battle. I believe it was at Gibeon, and David and his men won. So Abner tried to run. So Abner's leaving. Battle's over, and Asahel runs up on Abner. Now, Abner's an OG, so he's an old school dude, and he told him, he said, youngin, 
slow down, it's a wrap, I'm going to go. Hey, this young man was proud, like young men usually are. He was eager for battle, like warriors who have been are not. And he tried to call him into a battle. So Abner ended up killing him and then leaving. Well, Joab didn't like that. When, when Abner comes back to David, because at that point David won, so David, uh, Saul's people was trying to come back to David like, look, we was tripping, we with you now. And, but David was, David was merciful. He was a good king. And he told Abner, look, it's a wrap. You're good. You can be with me. So Abner joins David's team. So Joab's over there feeling salty. He sees Abner one day, and the Bible says he hollers at Abner. It doesn't say he hollers at Abner, but this gist of what the Bible teaches is that he hollered at Abner. He went and got with him, and why he, 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 he hey, man, what's up? And then did him in. And the Bible says David mourned. He mourned. He fasted. He said, you killed a righteous man. May the Lord repay on your head what you've done. Well, David, doing his king thing, Absalom starts tripping. So Absalom gets uh, Amasa. Now, Amasa is Absalom's commander. Now, Absalom, we, the story of Absalom, Absalom was David's son who revolted against him. He ended up dying. Joab killed him, even though Joab wasn't supposed to kill him. Joab killed him. Uh, Amasa, Amasa comes back, and the, the kingdom's divided. And to get the kingdom to come together, David's like, look, Amasa, look, it's, I forgive you. Why don't you come, and I'm going to give you a new job. You can have Joab's job. So Amasa's like, cool. So Amasa gets Joab's job. Joab's now salty because he lost his job. Well, again, they're going out doing a battle. Amasa's out doing what he's supposed to do. Here comes Joab, disguised, runs up on him. Bible says grabbed him by the beard. So he didn't probably, like, tug his beard, but he probably kind of, like, embrace him. Like, hey, man, what's up? You know when you give somebody a hug and you're trying to grab him by the face. So it was that. And, he grabbed, and, and it says he stabbed him in his stomach. And when he pulled the, the sword out, the entrails fell to his feet. That's probably the image David has in his mind when he says, you got blood on the belt, blood on your feet. And it's clear what he wants done. He says, do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. We find out in the coming chapter that Solomon had a hitman, Benaiah, hollered at him, went, struck him down, and Joab died. Shimei is the next character we see. Shimei had a loud mouth. So David's on the run from Absalom, and Shimei comes out. He's of the house of Saul, and he's throwing rocks at David. He's throwing rocks at David and his servants, and he's cursing them. You worth this what you get. You ain't never coming back here. God ain't getting against somebody. You worthless. Boom, boom, boom. And he, he just follows David and taunts him. David recalls this. He's dying now. Now, again, once the peace happened, Shimei came back and said, David, I was tripping. And David, as the merciful man he was, he says, I won't kill you. I won't kill you. That's what my Bible says, verse 8. I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, son, do not hold him guiltless. He says, you're wise. I know you'll work it out. You'll know what you ought to do to him. You shall bring his gray head down with blood. 
unpeacefully, unpeacefully. Kings judge people. It's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to bless those under their care who are happy citizens of their rule, and they're to execute judgment on rebels. That's what kings do. Many people think of King Jesus like he's not coming with a blade. But friends, that's what kings do. As you think of Jesus, can you hold what we have written in Psalm 110? It's speaking of Jesus. Hebrews tells us that. This is what it says of King Jesus. Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. King Jesus. David, as a forebearer of this reality, informs Solomon that the day of wrath is upon Joab and Shimei. He says, do not let them die in peace. Friends, there is no such thing as resting in peace if you are God's enemy. Christians should never say R.I.P. to an enemy of Christ. We should say with tears in our eyes because it does not get better for them and it is not peaceful for them. May we never forget who he is. He is the Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means Clear the guilty. He remembers. He remembers every sin. He knows every evil deed, every evil thought, every evil intention. And he will call us all to account. If you're a professing believer and you are hiding sin, you cannot fool God. He sees. Even recent sins that you may think you got away with. That's what Joab did. He thought it was in the past. When they was young boys. The king has not forgotten. And just because the Lord appears silent does not mean that he is indifferent. That's why 1 Timothy 5 warns us, you know, the sins of some are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Some appear now, some appear later, but friend, none are forgotten by God. How did the Lord count Joab's actions? How did he count Shimei's sin? Their sin abides on them. Years 
does not diminish the wrath of God. If anything, it stores it up. He will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. He will by no means clear the guilty. Death was not a peace for them, but a torment. As the king must walk the way of righteousness, he must deal righteously with the guilt of sin. Now, this is not something we're called to do as Christians primarily. We don't execute judgment on sinners like God does. We do it through church discipline in a church. Or perhaps if you're a Christian and you you work for law enforcement or some institution that God has given the sword to, to act on his behalf. But for most of us this morning, I just want to draw our attention to the judgment of Christ. God's forever king. And consider, if David can recall on his deathbed, a few bad deeds he needs to make up for, how much more? Righteously and entirely will Jesus exact vengeance on God's behalf. He says, behold, I am coming soon. Bringing what? Recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. We see that the wages of sin is death. Always has been. Always will be. Those who reject God's way, who reject God's king, will receive God's wrath. They will be under God's judgment. If you're here today and you've rejected Christ, you have not walked according to his way, but you've thrown it aside, know that the the same end that came for Joab and Shimei will come for you. But it will not be executed by a man. No, it will be executed by the Lord himself. The king will exercise his vengeance. Vengeance is mine, the Lord says. I will repay. Friends, one of the worst things that anyone can ever hear from the Lord is what David said in verse 9. Do not hold him guiltless. And outside of Christ, that's what everyone will hear. Guilty, guilty, guilty. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are not, we, have the, we read the story and we just identify with the hero. But we're not naturally David. We're not naturally the Solomons here. We're naturally the Joabs. We're the Shimeis. We are the sinners and we'll die a sinner's death only to be raised to a sinner's judgment. The resurrection happens to all. It's hope for those in Christ. We and of ourselves will only hear from God's judgment. Do not hold them guiltless. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, we beg you to reconsider. Do you know why this is here? Because the king wants to remove as many from judgment as possible. You have an offer, you have an invitation personally from me, but through me by God. He's making his appeal to you saying, be reconciled now. 
So there's no payment in judgment. Many appeal to the fact that only God can judge them. But that is precisely the problem. Our only hope must be David's only hope. Now, what separates David from Joab? Perhaps you're thinking in your mind, yeah, but David killed somebody wrongfully too. David got sins too. How come David's chilling in peace, pleading for someone to go to death without it? David had a hope. There must be a way for sin to be forgiven. There must be. That was David's hope. And indeed, there is one. That's why David wrote Psalm 32. Now, Romans 4 tells us who (laughs) he was thinking about justification by faith alone. That is, God, if I believe God's word of pardon on me, Because of him applying my judgment to Christ, I too can be forgiven. Blessed is the man whose transgression is covered. That's what made David say that. Whose sin is forgiven. Who the Lord counts no iniquity. Our brother read the Psalm 130. If God counts iniquity, who can stand? Well, the problem is he does count iniquity. He counts everybody's iniquity. But in Christ, because of the cross, where he remembered our iniquities on the cross, he remembered them on on Christ so that when he looks to us, he can promise to remember them no more. The sins didn't disappear. They got paid for. The wrath of God that comes on all God's enemies fell on Christ. While we were still weak, he didn't die for a bunch of good people. He died for the wicked, yes. While we were ungodly, uh, Romans 5, while we were sinners, while we were Joab's and Shimei's, Christ died for us. And in Christ, that throne that will judge sinners, it's changed into a throne of grace. And this brings us to our last thought, Brother Barzillai. Look at verse 7. It's sandwiched between the two commands for judgment. Verse 7. Barzillai. Where Joab and Shimei remind us that Christ will judge rebels. Barzillai reminds us that Christ has steadfast love for his friends. Barzillai's story is sweet. It's very sweet. He says in verse 7, Deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. He says, in that word, he says, be loyal to them. You might have a little marking in your Bible that draws your attention to something below that says, show them steadfast love. Show the sons of Barzillai steadfast love. Real quick, 2 Samuel chapter 19 tells us what happened with Barzillai. 
David was on the run, and Barzillai showed him love. So 2 Samuel 19, 32 through 39, Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my Lord, the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my Lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you, and all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him. He returned to his own home. In closing, David, as a good king, never forgot his faithful friend. Uh, What honor would David bestow on the faithful? What could he give them? Surely if judgment is promised to the rebels, is there anything for the faithful? Well, he did what any king would do. He said, man, come to the crib. Come eat with me. Now, I'm about to go eat with with, uh, Pastor Tim. I don't know if it's going to be a king's meal. But you could imagine being invited to a king's feast. But Barzillai had to decline King David. He's like, David, he said, brother, I'm 80, I'm, I'm old, I'm tired, I want to go home, I want to take a nap. So David says, well, remember his sons, Solomon. Remember his sons. And notice the limitations of that reward. I mean, the best David could do was give Barzillai a place to remain comfortable for the rest of his days, which he declined. The best that Solomon could offer to the sons of Barzillai was comfort for the next 40 years he would rule because Solomon messed up sin and got the kingdom divided. But Jesus is the great king. And he offers something way doper to his friends. He who perfectly kept the way of his father, who righteously will execute judgment On the wicked, he graciously gives a better hope and honor to his friends. Everything he gives is better. Because if Jesus was there, he would say, Barzillai, you can come be with me. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus could have said, I got a better place than the king's crib. I can take you to glory. And I got better delights than David. I got full joy that don't empty up. Pleasures forevermore without end. And you can't just kick it with the king of the earth. You can be with the king of glory. And we don't even get to only eat there, although there's going to be grub there. Praise God. No, no, no. We get to abide there. 
He says, Jesus told his disciples, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that you may be where I am also. And rather than only offering comfort for the rest of his life. Because that was Barzillai's main issue with it, right? I'm 80, man. I can't even enjoy that. Let him do it. Jesus promises a resurrection. What's dope about this is, so Barzillai, I'm going to raise you up. I'll give you a new body. What if I were to give you a body that never died? That never had pain? That never wept? But that perfectly set you up to enjoy me where I am forever. Those who trust in Christ get this very thing. Well done. Good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And Jesus says, and even if you die, yet shall you live. And where you live, you'll be with me. Let's pray.